Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past today about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by the set pieces, we talk to former Tottenham Hotspur, Chelsea, Portsmouth and Swindon Town midfielder Mickey Hazard about his Super Focus interview for Shoot Magazine from the 1981-82 season and a player profile in the match annual from around the 1987-88 season. You can find the original interviews on our Twitter feed at WHTYPod and on our dedicated channel over at The Set Pieces, www.thesetpieces.com. Full name? My full name is Michael Hazard. Birthplace and date? My birthplace is Sunderland, and I was born on the 5th of the 2nd, 1960. And your height? My height, I am 5 foot 7 inches. And do you still weigh 11 stone? No, I've lost weight. I'm 10 stone 4. Uh, no, I, I, I weigh probably in and around 14 stone now. I have had four operations recently. <laughs> well, Mickey, welcome to the podcast. Um, I have to ask you how you're doing, because um, when I was preparing for the episode, um, I discovered that you've been laid low recently by the bloody coronavirus. Um, are you fighting fit again now? Well, I had the coronavirus, but also I had four operations um, during the coronavirus, um, my kidneys had stopped working, um, so I had four operations. But um, thankfully, fighting fit, everything going uh, unky dory, um, and I'm feeling very, very good. Good, that's great to hear. Um, well, first, let's clear something up. Both of the interviews we're referencing on this episode have you down as Mike Hazard. Now, did it ever bother you to be called Mick, Mickey, or Mike? Um, from one thing to the next. Um, it was certainly some, something that bothered uh, Manchester United defender Mick Duxbury because he was almost always referred to as Mike. And in his autobiography, is actually called It's Mick, Not Mike. So were you ever bothered about that? Uh, no, never. Uh, you call me what you want. I've been called a lot worse, Tristan. <laughs> Trust me. Um, no, never gave it a thought. Obviously, everybody... Um, refers to me in real life when we're together in company call me as mickey or mick um often in often in commentary in games i'm called mike hazard um, which didn't quite sound right to me uh, but i was never bothered or interested in informing them to change it or not i sign my autograph mike hazard because it's uh, it's it's probably an easier name to write than mick or a Certainly, it can be more creative, I think, although the K could be creative. But, um, no, I sign Mike, but I get called most often Mick or Mickey. Right, well, let's move on to these interviews then, because there's some gems to pick through. So you were born in Sunderland, uh, and you've still very obviously got the accent, uh, despite having moved away uh, 40 years ago or so. Um, they were the team you supported as a boy, yet you signed with Spurs straight from school. Um, but I understand it wasn't easy for you at first because I read that you suffered badly with homesickness. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I came from a, a big town, but in, in comparison to London, an incredibly small place. Um, I'd never known anything but my parents and my brothers and sisters. Uh, I had a big family up in Sunderland. I had four sisters and two brothers. My mum, my dad, uh, numerous aunts and uncles and, and, uh, and uh, well, loads and loads of aunts and uncles and cousins etc so um, when you first move away when I came down to Sunderland as a schoolboy it was no problem my dad would come with me um, obviously never anticipated that one day he wouldn't be coming with me coming with me but um, and then eventually you reach the age of 16 and you've got to come full foot down full time uh, and it's a big place London and, and and at the beginning when you don't know anybody it seems a very lonely place, an unfriendly place. You know, when you come from a small place like Sunderland, it, it almost feels like everybody knows everybody. You know, if I walk down the street with two cases in my hand, someone will say, do you need a hand, mate? 
Um, in London, I could have five cases in my hand and, and it wouldn't happen. That's not to say that people wouldn't help me, but until they get to know you, they, you know, they keep themselves to themselves. Once you become part of furniture, they're absolutely wonderful people to be around and, and to be with. Um, so, yes, incredibly homesick. I ran off one five or six times. Um, but in the end, settled down and, and, and see it as my own now. Yeah. Well, you mentioned in the first of these two interviews that your parents were the biggest influences on your career. And I guess through that hard time you had, when you were having trouble when you first moved down there, um, they saw you through that. And then also, I guess they saw the benefit when you did eventually break into that successful Spurs team. Listen, um, my parents were the most wonderful of people and, and, and I defy anybody to leave two such parents behind um, and not feel that you miss them. And I'm sure everybody has, has the same feeling equally about their parents. Um, but also on top of that, I had four sisters who were wonderful uh, and two brothers. And um, at the time, did it feel like London was the, the key to me becoming a footballer? No. Um, did it turn out to be the right decision? One million percent. Not only did I find, uh, make it my schoolboy dream come true, but I happened to find a club that sat so beautifully with me. Um, in terms of its philosophies, uh, its beliefs in the way the game should be played, it, its motto, to dare is to do, um, all of those things sort of sat beautifully with me. Um, and of course, it, it was the start of a, an incredibly long love affair. Amazing decision from my dad, not knowing anything about Tottenham at the time in terms of what it we like to live here, what the club was like, what the philosophies were, what their their style of play was, what their motto was or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it was the most incredible decision. Um, and I'm so grateful that he made that decision because I found, as I said, that, that my place of worship. Well, speaking of your family, in the, in the match annual interview, they asked you, what would you do with 50 grand? To which you said, and I think this is pretty touching, especially considering how things were at the time in the Northeast, that you would share it around your family uh, because they're not well off. And I suppose you have to understand the context of the 1980s in, in Sunderland uh, and all the industrial decline and all that. And it was pretty tough in the region that, back then because um, you probably could have bought two or three houses in Sunderland for £50,000 back then. Two or three. <laughs> Ten. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we could have bought, uh, we could have bought, depending on obviously which house and where, um, but you could have probably bought seven or eight terraced houses for £50,000. Um, and I, if I remember rightly, and whether or, whether or not it was this one, I, I think I said that I would buy my mum and dad a house and my brothers and sisters. Mm. Um, so £50,000. One, it showed my naivety of not really knowing how much houses would cost. <laughs> um, because thinking £50,000 would, would house my mum and dad, my four sisters and two brothers. Um, it might well do in Sunderland, but it wouldn't be the greatest of houses. But instead, if you bought one big house for 50,000, you'd have got a beautiful house for them all to live in. So, uh, of course, I, we, I, I, we were an incredibly close family. Um, you know, when I think back to my life with my family, and if you look at um, from sort of naught to 16, um, that would be my life with my family in terms of, every minute of every day, 24-7, every month of the year. Um, I feel, and this is not saying that um, we are saints, we're far from it, um, but ultimately I can rely and count on every member of my family to be by my side in my moment of need as I would be by theirs. Uh, thanks to an upbringing, um, that made us respect and, and love one another and, and, and look after one another um, and upbringing from our parents. Um, so, yes, ever grateful, in, you know, and that Sunderland was my place of birth and I was born into a family that I absolutely worship. Um, and if I'd won 50 grand or a million or two million today, they would be the first people that I would look after. In the, um, the 1981-82 shoot interview that we've got, 
your two childhood football heroes were Johan Cruyff and Alan Ball, who incidentally is pictured chasing you in this interview during his days yes. at Southampton. Um, and yes. these, are, these are a fantastic pair of he kids. Couldn't get me, I mean. <laughs> um, well, his name's, of course, it was near the end of his career, but um, his name is often overlooked, I think, when the discussion about English, England's greatest player comes up. Um, you know, we always talk about people like Bobby Charlton, um, Paul Gascoigne, of course, gets mentioned, and, and rightly so, but um, Alan Ball was a great player, wasn't he? Alan Ball was an absolutely wonderful player. He was also the first footballer to wear white boots. Um, I had a pair of white boots just like Alan's. I absolutely idolised them when I was very young. Um, he epitomised the way that I saw the game being played. Um, but also, when I turned um, professional at Spurs and made my debut and, uh, and sort of broke in, on a sort of fairly regular basis. Alan wrote a lovely piece about me saying that he sees me as a future England international. I'm not sure whether or not he'd read my article that he was one of my favourite players. Mm-hmm. Um, so felt obliged to say that. Uh, but he felt like England's future would be safe in players like my hands, etc. Uh, um, and it was lovely. It's, it's lovely for any young player um, breaking through into the professional game to see that one of your schoolboy idols um, has spoken about you in a very, very complimentary way. That meant so much to me. One, because it was he was a great footballer and a World Cup winner. And two, um, for a player of that ilk to hold me in high esteem meant a lot. Um, well, you also liked the Maverick in other sports too, because you picked out snooker hellraiser Alex Higgins, tennis bad boy Ilya Nastasi, and boxes, boxing's great showman Muhammad Ali as your favourite other sportsman. Um, all choices reflective of your own character back then? I would suggest maybe a character that I would have liked to have been. I was, I was probably a little bit too shy to be as outgoing as they were, but they were along the lines of the way that I saw every sport being played. You know, if we take it on to today, for instance, Ronnie O'Sullivan, I absolutely worship. If you talk about when Alex Higgins started to retire, Jimmy White became my favourite player. Mm. Um, Boxing, Muhammad Ali retired, Sugar Ray Leonard became my absolute hero. Tennis, John McEnroe, absolutely my favourite all-time sportsman, John McEnroe. I absolutely worship them. You know, and then Johan Cruyff, is, again, as a footballer, if you look at today, Lionel Messi, uh, there's one um, significant thing that is involved in all of the players throughout my life that I've uh, idolised, worshipped and, and, and loved but the, the way they play the game. And, and, and it's sort of it's said in that um, three players that you've just mentioned is that if they play the game with flair, creativity, um, talent, um, characters, um, then you can rest assured that they're going to be high on my list. You know, that doesn't mean to say that the, um, the, the, the great defenders of this world are not great players, but I think if you went through every fan in the world and asked them who's their favourite player, um, or name the top 10 favourite players, everyone would be someone who's incredibly gifted, talented, flair, creativity, um, outrageous talent. Um, it wouldn't be a defender as such. Mm. Um, there'd be very few defenders in the all-time greatest footballers, or if you pick out the all-time greatest tennis players, they're all going to have such a, a massive array of shots and, and touch and feel and disguise and, and creativity and, and, and snooker the same. Um, so, yes, I you know, make no apologies. that I, 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 I'd like to think that I played the game along the same lines with flair, creativity, touch, um, instinctiveness, uh, disguise, awareness. Um, of course, I did. I had flaws that maybe held, my back, held me back in terms of a, a stubborn so-and-so, and if my manager said, today I want you to do this, and I didn't agree with it, I would say, no, I've got to play the way that I play. Um, otherwise, leave me out, because I didn't want to play any other way but the beautiful way. So I would be prepared to forsake my place in the team um, for not being told that I had to do something do- different to the beautiful game. Mm. 
Interesting. Um, because, yeah, you, you broke into the team, didn't you, in 1980, and you, you played in the FA Cup side in 82. But, yeah, you were kind yeah. of, you were in and out a bit, weren't you? And do you think it was that, that attitude or, um, like you say, that, that stubbornness that, that prevented you? Okay, it was, a, it was a great midfield that Tottenham had at that time, but um, with a lot of great fair players. But do you think it was that stubbornness that held you, held you back a bit? I would say that combination. Obviously, we had some unbelievable footballers. You know, I doubt, there's, I, I doubt that there's many other footballers would have played as many times for Spurs as I played if they played in the era that I played. You know, in terms of the midfield, Glenn Odell, Ozzy Ardiles, Ricky Villa, two World Cup winners and one of the greatest players ever, Glenn Odell. And yet, I played 170 games. Um, so, I, I, I sort of think to myself, yeah, that could have easily been 500 games. Um, but I also played 170 games in one, possibly the greatest midfield Spurs have ever had. Um, so I consider that um, that a compliment that I played so many games, but also it maybe cost me more, uh, more games, but also my attitude at times, um, you know, now that I'm older and wiser, um, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Um, when a manager said to me, Look, I want you to do this today. Okay, boss, that's no problem. And every now and again during the course of the game, I would just in front of the bench, look, boss, look what I'm doing. You told me to make more tackles. You told me to do this. And I'd do it right in front of the bench. Look, boss, did you see that? I did what you wanted. But then the rest of the game, when I wasn't in front of the bench, to play it my way. But me being me and stubborn me, I sort of said, no, I'm playing my way. If you don't like it, leave me out. Um, that was totally wrong. Um, although it, was a big strength of mine that I had this streak inside me in the way that the game should be played, but also it was a weakness too. And they often say that your strengths are your weaknesses as well. Yeah. Well, in the shoot interview, you did name Glenn Hoddle and Ozzy Ardiles as your favourite current players. And uh, you mentioned a reserve player, Peter Southie, as one for the future. Yes. Now, very sadly, that was a prediction that was never given the opportunity to be proven right because Peter passed away from leukaemia in 1983, just aged just 21. Uh, that's a tragic story. I guess he was, he was pretty much ages with you then. It's a tragic story because Peter would have gone on to being, of being one of the very, very, very best footballers. He was a young right back. He had energy to burn. He had a fantastic uh, physicality. Very good on the ball. He could get up and down the line. No problem. He was an absolutely wonderful footballer. He was very young. Um, and obviously for me to say in a pick him as my up-and-coming youngster means he's a lot younger than me um, and sadly while he broke into the first team I'll never forget it because in training he was always at the front of the pack and then one day he started struggling the runs and um, people thought he wasn't trying um, and of course um, he started to complain of being very very fatigued um, and then he had to undergo I think it was a bone marrow transplant. Obviously, they diagnosed him by that stage of having leukemia. He had, he had to undergo a um, bone marrow transplant, and um, it was successful. Um, but as after any bone marrow transplant, uh, transplant operation, you cannot catch it, an illness. Mm. And he caught uh, pneumonia, and it took his life, sadly. And, and um, I remember that we put up this big... Um, picture of Peter and added in the players lounge until White Hart Lian uh, disappeared. Um, I don't know who got it when White Hart Lian um, was knocked down but there was a wonderful picture in, in the programme of him and every year we were in the programme on, on the day that he died um, we'd all obviously gone to the service um, in the church in South London and because he lived in Putney I think and um, we he was sorely missed. He was loved by everyone. He was an absolutely lovely guy. Uh, and one of the tragedies for me in my lifetime, from a footballing perspective, uh, that it happened to him so young, because I'm sure he would have gone on and played for England. Well, we've got your nickname down as being Curly, almost certainly because of that distinctive mop of blonde. Yeah, the distinctive mop of blonde hair you had. But you do admit yeah. to hating that nickname. It wasn't so much the nickname; it was the hair. <laughs> I absolutely, um, when I look at my hair today as, as, as an old man, I look at my hair and I think, why didn't I just keep it like this all of the time when I was playing? 
you know, um, because it used to grow. I was, I, was, I was a sort of shy youngster and didn't like going to the hairdressers because I would have to sit and talk to the hairdresser. Um, so I used to avoid it for as long as possible, but my hair would just grow out and out and out and out. And that's how the nickname developed. So I didn't mind the nickname, but I, I couldn't stand the air. Um, but I was, to not like something that you're, you're responsible for, because all I had to do was go to the hairdressers to get it cut short, and then nobody would have had to call me Curly because of my sort of quiet shyness. And I, I never, ever, or I rarely did. Um, when I went, I got it cut short, but then I wouldn't go until it was really long again and so on. Um, and nowadays, I just go in, get it cut, and it's short, and nobody would even think I was Curly. But yet they still call me Curly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we have to talk about the UEFA Cup in 1984, don't we? And before we get to the epic final, it was your goal against Hajduk Split in the semi-final second leg at White Hart Lane that proved decisive. And it was a great goal too. Miller and Roberts are both forward. And Hazard goes for goal. Oh, yes! Spurs in front. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, to be honest with you, why we needed that goal is beyond me because in Adjuk split in their stadium, we played sensational. We could have come away winning three or four nil. We were that good and we ended up losing 2-1, which was an absolutely shocking result in terms of when you consider how incredible we played. We then got them back to White Hartley and feeling very confident because we'd absolutely played them off the park over there. Uh, and at White Hartley, and they were a different side. They were very, very, very good technical side. Typical continental side. Able. You don't reach the semi-final of, in those days anyway, the semi-final of the UEFA Cup went second, third, fourth and fifth, all qualified for the, the champ- UEFA Cup. Uh, so if you're reaching the semi-final, you're a good side. Um, and it was a totally different kettle of fish at White Hartley. And, but um, in the seventh minute of the game, not that I can remember exactly, it was <laughs> the seventh minute and the third second. <laughs> uh, we got a free kick on the edge of the box and the goalkeeper didn't lie in the wall up very well. And so he was readjusting the wall. And we said to the ref, Stevie Berman, can we take it quick? He went, yeah. And the, the goalie was sort of on the far post. And the line, you know, when you line a wall up, you line the first man in the wall outside of the post um, so that the second man is lined up on the post. So it's harder to curl it round it. But they'd lined the first man up on the post and the goalkeeper was realigning it. And I took it early and bang in the bottom corner. Um, and fortunately for us, it was um, enough to get us through to the final, which was the most amazing night. The, the, the semi-final was an amazing night. and, and being the one who got the winner. Obviously, you are the, the sort of glory, glory boy on that particular night. And of course, the final was just, wow. I mean, yeah. um, my greatest, them two, the semi-final and the final, um, are probably, from a personal perspective and from a club perspective, the two greatest moments or memories that I have in football. Yeah. Well, as you said, the reward for that semi-final win was the two-legged final against Anderlecht. Um, it could and perhaps should have been an all-English final against Nottingham Forest had the president of Anderlecht not bribed the referee to give them some dodgy decisions in their semi-final. Anyway, to the first, first leg in Brussels and Spurs, you got a 1-1 draw uh, with your corner leading directly to Paul Miller's goal and then the tumultuous second leg at home where you were one down in the tie uh, and on aggregate uh, with about six minutes remaining. Um, but after some intense Tottenham pressure, you chased down a clearance over on your right wing. And yet again, you're instrumental. Can you take up the story of what happened next? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Ozzy, <laughs> Ozzy hit the bar from about three foot. I don't know how he hit the bar, but he hit the bar. And it got someone acted clear out wide. I ran onto it. And, and, and obviously, there's an area, there's an area where... Um, you have to put the ball and that ball then has to be attacked by the people coming on it. And as long as you put the ball in that area, if nobody gets on the end, it's their responsibility. But you must hit that area. And, and um, I quickly got my first touch, cushioned it into space. And then I just whipped it straight into that area. Uh, and Graham Roberts was there as captain on the night, leading by example. Attacked the ball, stuck it in the back of the net. 
brought down and stuck it in his in, on the back of the net. You know, and I always say to Rubble, he really owes me off of all the money that he's claimed in the years since uh, for being the hero of that cup final because he scored the equalising goal. Um, and I put it on a sixpence for him. You know, he hasn't given me one pence. <laughs> so it was an, an incredible occasion. Obviously, it then went to penalties. I was due to be the fifth penalty taker. Rob were first, me fifth. Um, so you all start with your best and, and the last one has to be a good penalty taker as well. Um, I was suffering from cramp. And if, when, you put a, when you go to penalties, you have to put your five penalty takers into the referee mm. before the penalty shoot. Keith was reluctant to take a risk because I was suffering with cramp that I would have recovered in time. So he put, put in the five. And of course, by the time the fifth penalty comes around, I'm well recovered. I'm not suffering with cramp anymore. And as Danny's walking up to the... And, 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 and I think this example shows the emotions that you can feel in football. You know, obviously we're 4-3 up and we've both got a penalty left. And Danny's walking up to score the winning goal. And, and, and as he's walking up, I'm thinking, this should be me. I've just had a great game, got voted man of the match. This should be my penalty. I should be going down in Spurs history as the winning penalty scoring goal in the UEFA Cup final. Right, and I'm thinking, oh God, why did I get cramped? I wish it was me. And then the keeper saves Danny, Danny Thomas, and I went, oh shit, it's me next. <laughs> I'm shaking like a leaf now. So the, the, the turnaround from feeling, oh, I wish this was me, to oh shit, it's me. No, when he missed. But unfortunately for us, um, you know, I'm now preparing for this sixth penalty because I'd recovered, and I'm thinking, come on, come on, come on, confidence, believe, believe, believe. Uh, uh, and Parksy saved it. Um, so Danny made Parksy at Eva. Um yeah. And the, the celebrations carried on um, until seven o'clock in the morning. In fact, straight from the celebrations, me, Graham Roberts, Danny Thomas and Gary Mabbitt caught an air, a taxi to Ethro, plane from Ethro up to St. St. Andrews Hotel where the England team was staying. We'd been selected for the full England team. Um, so it was an incredible week in football for me, um, being selected for the full England team in the very week that we win the UEFA Cup. It was the most amazing um, night, the most amazing week, uh, but more importantly, it was amazing for the football club. That's the key to everything, is that um, nothing will ever replace it in your mind, but the, 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 the bigger goal is that the football club wins a trophy. Um, and that's a really, really nice feeling, because... When you go down and look through the history books, your name will always be linked to the team that won those trophies. Um, so, and and it will be the football club that write mostly about though you know in their history. This the UEFA Cup was won and such and such and this will happen and this he hasn't made two goals. Blah blah blah. Um, and of course, it's it's nice to be remem remembered long after you're gone by future Spurs fans who read up on the the club's history. And they know that I made, I scored the winner in the semi and I made two goals in the final. And that's a, a reward within itself, but also that the club won these trophies. That's the key to it all, is that winning trophies for the football club is, is almost like a, um, a repayment for them allowing you to fulfil your schoolboy dreams. Yeah. Well, I'm no Spurs fan, but um, I remember watching the game when I was a kid on TV. And it, 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 the, the scenes of delirium, uh, are just magic to watch. Um, and I suppose you've never had to buy a drink down there ever since. No, uh, I, I, and that's the truth. I haven't. Um, I never did mind. <laughs> sorry, I, I never bought a drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, never had to buy a drink ever at White Hart Lane. Um, still don't to this day. And I work there now as a sort, in a sort of ambassadorial role um, with lots of other legends. Walking around the stadium, it's... It's almost like it was yesterday. Fans so want to be associated with the other, want to talk to you about what it was like to win the UEFA Cup, what it was like to win the FA Cup. Um, and I suppose, in a way, I'm sad that they feel like that because I would love them to have won the Champions League because then we would be talking about the Champions League and not something so long ago as 84 as winning the UEFA Cup. Uh, we could be talking about winning the Champions League rather than, um, of course, there's a spin-off that, well, they did win it, so they'll still talk about the 84 team winning in Europe. But, but as a Spurs fan, it's time for us to win something big again. Uh, to, 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 to... We're too long ago. We're too long ago. We've got to forget about 
us and, and, and we've got to um, create new memories, new achievements, new goals, new trophies, new, new history um, so that today's fans can talk about those uh, as well as um, be linked to the, the, the past glories. Well, before we get on to your move to Chelsea, there's definitely a few things we need to discuss. Um, in 1981, you owned the Ford Capri. Um, and I think every footballer whose interviews I've, I've read for this podcast, at some stage or other, owned a Ford Capri. Um, that was pretty much thanks to the TV show, The Professionals, which, you know, if, if you think back to the yeah. curly hair, you know, you had a, a striking resemblance, I suppose, hey. to, to Doyle. No, I thought he looked like me. <laughs> <laughs> Good car? <laughs> cost me 850 quid um uh, it, to be honest with you it, um i loved the car i really did it was it was like i suppose it was in keeping with the way i played football it was a sporty type car it was it was a sort of a flair man's car a, a creative car it was imaginative and, and it was quite quick as well it was 1.6 um so um yeah it, it would sort of fit with the way that i played football uh, and as my first car, it was a brilliant car. I loved it. Mm. Well, you said that your favourite TV show was Minder, and the best film you'd seen recently was The Warriors. And that's in, that's impeccable taste, Mickey. That's such a cult classic. Um, your favourite actor was Paul Newman, uh, and again, he's another one who comes up a lot in these interviews. Um, but your favourite actress? Can you remember who you said? Doris Day. Doris Day, big fan, then, eh? Well, I, I, I tell you, one, I loved her singing voice. I thought she was a wonderful singer. Two, I thought she was absolutely stunningly beautiful. Um, and I was a bit of a, and still am to this day, I love a bit of a rom-com. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, she sang Once I Had a Secret Love. Um, what was that film called? Unbelievable film. Watched it about 500,000 500, times. Um, the Cowboy one, where she was a oh, Annie, Annie Oakley, is it? No, or any, not any ugly. No. Um, oh, blimey, I forgot some of her names. But lots of her films were very much like rom-coms. Mm. You say that your favourite band was the Manhattans, which is a soul group from the US, and I'll be honest, I've never heard of them. Um, are you still a fan? Uh, yes. Well, well not, obviously, not, I don't think they're a group anymore. I've got about 10 albums of theirs. They were the most beautiful, um, romantic, soft soul singers. You must remember Hurt. And kiss and say goodbye. Let's just kiss and say goodbye. Um, no, they were so wonderfully romantic, soft soul singers, and I loved them. They're still very high on my list. Yeah. Um, well, in 1985, you left Tottenham and you were sold to Chelsea. Now, nowadays, that's a move that would get you no end of stick from Spurs fans, probably Chelsea fans too. What was it like in those days to make that particular move, and, and how did both sets of fans react to you? Uh, pretty much the same. Um, I, I, I don't think it's... I think if you move in the right way, you're not responsible for engineering the move or um, lying about anything. Um, in my last game for Spurs, for instance, we, we won 5-1 at White Lane. I scored. Um, I got called out of the players' lounge by the then manager, Peter Shreves, informing me that Spurs had accepted an offer for me off Chelsea. Um, they'd set up a meeting on the Monday morning with the Chelsea manager. Uh, so ultimately, the, while the final decision rested with me, when you sort of informed that you won't play again if you don't move because the club have got cash flow problems mm-hmm. and it was a record Chelsea offer, um, you sort of left with no alternative. Um, that doesn't mean that either sets of fans would welcome you or be happy that you've chose that club. Um, but ultimately, you sort of, you know, there's a lack of maybe understanding that sometimes you're left with no choice. Uh, sometimes you have to go whether you want to or whether you don't. Um, certainly, if you want to play football, um, and that was the case in that instance. Um, how did Chelsea fans welcome me, um, coming from their great rivals? Um, they sort of didn't in the early days, in the early few games, and then. Maybe I didn't really pull up any trees at that point, trying to settle into a new style of play. New players who um, didn't quite know how I played and they played a totally different style to what I knew and was brought up on. And so it took a, 
a good three or four months to adapt. In the end, I had to tell the defenders, look, guys, I don't mind you hitting the front men. I don't mind that at all. But if I come there for the ball and you can give it to me, you give it to me first because I will play better balls to them than you can. Right, so you give me the ball first and if I'm not on, then you can do that. And of course, they adapted very quickly to that fact. I then got lots of the ball from the same areas that I got it at Spurs um, and became an absolute icon with the fans. You know, I'll look at Glenn Oddle and say that I've never seen such hero worship of Glenn Oddle when he was at Spurs. Um, but I had that same hero worship at Chelsea with the Chelsea fans um, um, because they loved the way that I played the game. I was flair, creative, um, talented. I, was, I had my shirt out, my socks down. They loved it all. And, and, and by the time um, that I left, I was... They don't love me so much now because obviously I told the world how much I love Spurs. Um, that's not an apology to anybody. I do. Spurs is I absolutely love. But I, I, I love the Chelsea fans. They, they, they treat me like I was a god. Um, and I will never criticise them in any way, shape or form. The club itself um, it sort of didn't fit the way I wanted my club to be. Maybe because I'd been sort of sheltered in my upbringing as a, as a 14-year-old through to... 25 when I left Spurs I'd, I'd known nothing but Spurs and um, we'd won trophies so it got in my heart um, and my soul and, and of course anything else sort of didn't sort of reach that level as such um, so I get why Chelsea fans some of them still send me nice messages uh, but I get why they don't uh, they're not kind when they talk about me now because of they all say what a great player but he's a bit of a dickhead now because he supports Spurs. Um, uh, but that's how it is. You know, you can't, it's not in your hands who you fall in love with. Mm. You know, when you fall in love with something, it, it, it's it's a chemistry between the two of you. Um, and from the moment I walked through the gates of White Hart Lane, um, there was a chemistry between the club and me. Um, their motto, to dare is to do, it was is my motto in every walk of life. Whether I played golf or tennis or anything, I'm always going for it. I'm always trying to hit the best shot I can hit or play the best pass I can hit. Um, beat the most men I can beat. Um, so it was almost like an hand to a glove. We sort of fit perfectly. Well, in, the, in your first season at Stamford Bridge, you had a pretty good tilt at the title, but fell away a bit in the last month or so of the season, which, you know, it, it, similar story to Spurs in a way, around about that sort of time. Yes. Having, having good players. But, but neither could topple Liverpool or Everton in the mid-80s. Um, what ingredient do you think was missing from that Chelsea side that would have made you really challenge? Well, if I touch on both clubs, you know, I played in two Tottenham teams that nearly won the title and should have won the title. The problem at Spurs was different to the problem at Chelsea. The problem at Spurs was that uh, creativity, we had an abundance of creative players, but creativity is defined in the dictionary is something that can't be reproduced at will. Um, now, because we had so many, more often than not, we could produce it. Um, but every now and again, the all three or four top draw, talented, creative footballers all failed at the same time. So consequently, it led to every now and again, an absolutely and totally shock result. And, and more often than not against lesser opposition rather than, the very top opposition. So I feel at Spurs, that's what cost us, is that um, every now and again, all the creative flair players, creative players, we would also have an off day together. Mm. Um, whereas at Chelsea, it was slightly the opposite in that it was a, a team based on its, its forward line, really. And that's why I was signed to add the flair and the creativity. Um, but often, um, and we challenged two years running for the, title we Chelsea could have won it two years running trust me um, but fell away because in the end we had Pat Nevin who was very talented and very creative um, but we became sort of the target that if you if you stop Pat, Pat and Mickey then you stop the creative mm. um, side of their play which then means they'll score less goals um, so yeah two 
two totally different re or in similar reasons in many ways is that uh, but we didn't have enough creative players at Chelsea as against at Spurs we possibly had too many um, so slightly different reasons why they didn't win the title both sides could have easily won the title Spurs in particular should have won it on two occasions we didn't um, and certainly with the team and the quality of the group of players that we had it was second to none and should have gone on and won it and we didn't um, I'm sure we would have if we'd all stick, stayed together for a few more seasons, but it broke up yeah. pretty quickly after the UEFA Cup final. Uh, yeah. Chelsea, on the other end, um, uh, there were just a, I always felt we were just a few um, players short of winning the title. Um, in the 1987-88 interview, you were asked what your claim to fame was, to which you said um, that you'd made a pop video with the singer Junior. Now, you'll have to tell yes. us how all that came about and what song it was so we can all search it out on YouTube. Well, I, I can't remember exactly. I think that it, um, I think it was Garth Crooks was reasonably friendly with Junior and, and, and he, Junior had asked for some footballers to come along for a five-a-side video for his record. I can't remember the bloody name. <laughs> um, so we go along um, and it was brilliant. And I got, do you really want no... Do you really want my love? That was it. So I had to mind while I was mm. playing football. So I would be playing football, dribbling. And then the camera would zoom in me. And Junior was singing, Do you really want my love? And I would be going, No, <laughs> I'm in a way. Um, and it, I've got to say, it was fantastic. If you go on uh, the internet, Google, and type in Junior, Do You Really Want My Love, uh, the video. You'll see me, Steve Archibald, and Garth Crooks, and Chris Hutton, I think it was, um, all in this video, getting changed, mingling. And, and it, <coughs> it was a claim to fame because it, it sort of it got pretty high in the charts. It was on top of the pops. <coughs> and obviously it circulated. Um, although there wasn't an internet, but it was on quite a few shows. Uh, and I've seen it a number of times. So... Yeah, it was a, a little claim to fame that I was in a pop video. But I'd also, I mean, pop pop stardom was nothing new to me, remember. I'd had a number one hit um, oh, yeah, with Ozzy's Dream. I'd <laughs> had a number five hit with um, Tottenham, Tottenham. So top, pop stardom was nothing, really. See, you've got a lot more in common with Doris Day than you ever thought. <laughs> yes, and, and, and obviously I think that if Doris had really wanted to take a a career to another notch she could have come to me for singing lessons <laughs> um, okay Mickey what happened to you after football and what are you doing now um, well what happened after football was that I, I retired for two or three years just playing golf um, got bored of playing golf every day for two years um, I, I don't know why or how but a friend of mine came round one day and we sat talking and he said, oh, I'm going to do the London Knowledge. And I said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, yeah. I said, what's that? I didn't have a clue what it was, really. And he said, uh, well, you get the London taxi driver and you go out and you learn all the roads. So I said, oh, I'll come and keep you company because up London, stop for breakfast, stop for lunch. It was an amazing day. I went out with him. We had an absolutely amazing day around London, seeing all the sights. Stopping for breakfast, having lunch. It was, it was honestly, it was fantastic. We did this for about 10 days together, right? It was wonderful. I was learning as I was going along about the sights of London and about the roads, etc. routes. It was, it was one of the nicest things I ever did. Stopping eating all of the time and um, just basically having a nice time rather than doing the knowledge. After 10 days, we, we only went Saturdays and Sundays. So after doing about sort of six weeks so I used to pick them up on a Saturday, Saturday and Sunday morning at about five o'clock in the morning so we'd get up because we did it in a car no traffic um, so we could fly around and then one Saturday morning I picked them up knocked on his door at five o'clock no answer wouldn't answer just wouldn't come down so I thought well, I'm up now I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to not go so I sort of carried on and I went up there and then rang him when I got in and he said, oh, pick me up tomorrow. So I went back the next day and picked them up again. Wouldn't answer the door. So I went out again and did it. But by this stage, I'd, there was 400 runs to do and I did 80 runs. So then I thought, I'm not going to stop after doing 80 runs. I've got, there's only 400 runs to do. 
I'll be finished in no time. So I carried on doing it myself, um, not realizing the that completing the runs and learning them and knowing it all off by heart uh, and the points and etc. Et um, didn't get wasn't going to let you pass after six months. You were going to have to hang around and do all the tests um, for like two years or eight, 18 months, whatever it took. So having completed the runs and learned it off by art a lot, suddenly I had 18 months of, of uh, taking tests. So while you're taking tests, you've still got to keep learning it all and remembering it all. And I used to get frustrated to death because I used to think, I'm so ready to do these. And then we, I passed out after two years and um that was it. I passed out. I never used the badge. But three years later, uh, someone said, why did you not use it? So I said, oh, I'll go. all right, I'll give it a go. So, um, so I'd not been out. I'd not did it for three years. And then I went out in, in I hired a taxi. cost me 30 quid. I went out to central London. I was driving around in central London at five o'clock in the morning. Now, in my mind, I had no idea, none, because I'd never been in central London at five o'clock in the morning. So I was thinking, oh, no one will be out. If I don't get a ride in the first hour, I'll just come straight home. That was my excuse. So I was driving out into central London. I get into Ullen Park. And I, I pulled up. I thought, I can't do this. I can't do this. I don't want to pick anyone up. I'm driving where I'm not seeing anyone. You know, it's like driving up and down the M1. You're not going to pick anyone up, are you? Mm. So I, I pulled into Ullen Park, Crescent. And um, I thought, Right, I'm going home. I leave my light on. If I if I see someone, I'll take them. If I don't, I'm going home. So if I get to say Oxford Street and my lights on, I'll turn it off and just go home. I turned out of Holland Park Crescent, and someone went, "Yes, flag me." So I pulled over. They said, "Can you take me to Victoria?" Now that's the dream first job, yeah. Victoria is such a big place, mm. right? Because your first ride's the most nerve-wracking ride because you, you, you tend to have a blank. Victoria is the most biggest place you could possibly wish to get to. You're never going to forget Victoria, are you? <laughs> they said, Victoria. They got in the car thought, shit, where's Victoria? I couldn't think of where it was. So I was just driving along and I was thinking, I have no idea where it is. And I was thinking, it'll come to... And I was, as I was driving along, I was... Calm down, calm down, calm down. I'm trying to calm down. Anyway, I ends up at Marble Arch, and then I, I, I took a right down Park Lane, and I thought, oh, got it, I got it. So I'm driving down to Victoria now. The fare was a tenner, right? It gives me a tenner. I put it in my pocket, and I go, phew, hmm. like relief that I'd got him there. Someone taps on my window and says, can you take me to Waterloo? I went, shit where's Waterloo mm. <laughs> I mean the two biggest places in London and I didn't have a clue where they were because I was so on edge got them to Waterloo and from there it was on and, and I did that for a few years and then decided I'd had enough gave up the license um, and then worked at Spurs as a coach while I was doing the taxi and actually I worked at Spurs for 10 years as a coach um, then got a job at Crystal Palace which sort of helped me prolong the tax because I did I hated the taxi and but it it helped me prolong it because on the way to Crystal Palace, I would go out early, mm. do my bit of work, and then and then do go and do the job I had at Crystal Palace. Um, and then I'd had enough of travelling over to Crystal Palace. For, I'd been there three years, produced Victor Moses, Nathaniel Klein, Sean Scout, so many good players uh, who had come through my um, schoolboy academy. Um, and then I, I, I've had enough. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. Um, then I got the the um, so ambassadorial role at Spurs, working on match days, um, signing autographs, doing pitches, etc., watching the game, um, assessment of analysis of games, etc., and then um, doing tours of the ground and blah blah blah. Uh, and then COVID arrived, and mm. I've not done anything since COVID. Well, Mickey, we're going to crank up the time machine and give you a chance to go back and have a chat with yourself in the 1980s. Um, what one piece of advice? whether it's in football or, or life in general, uh, what piece of advice would you give yourself? If I was advising the Mickey Hazards of the early 80s, I would say, don't be so stubborn. Um, listen to your manager and 
because the manager wants the best for the football club and for the team. Um, so if you listen to the manager um, and give him what he wants, he maybe would have had 500 Spurs appearances and 100 England caps. Um, so that would be probably the best advice from a, an individual perspective, I would say, uh, on the training pitch, on the football pitch, never, never, never do the same thing twice. When you come up against top, you can get away with the same thing a hundred times against bad players. But when you're playing against top players, you do something once, they're thinking you're going to do it again and how can they stop it? So never do the, the, the same thing twice to enable them to get to know what, what you're going to do. Um, always be varied in your approach because um, that means they'll never be able to work out what you're going to Is he going to do that? Is he going to do this? Is he going to do that? Uh, and you'll, you'll keep them confused. So never do the same thing twice. Well, Mickey, um, our time on the podcast is at an end and I'm afraid we're going to have to leave a few of the things in the past, such as you stealing sweets when you were at school and being mistaken for Harpo Marks. <laughs> I, 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 to be honest with you, I did. I, I won't deny that. I did. I used to steal sweets um, from the sweet shop. Um, I didn't have any money as a youngster and, and um, the opportunity in a pack shop when all the school kids were in there um, was just to stick your hand through and grab a bar of chocolate and walk out the door was was too uh, what, too tempting. Yeah, and well, we've all done it, haven't we? Um, it, it's great to hear you're doing well and, and things are going well uh, with your health and everything. It's good to know you're, you're sort of back on your feet and it's been brilliant to reminisce. So thanks so much for coming on to What Happened to You. Um, you're on Twitter, aren't you? Where can the listeners follow you? I am. One Mickey Hazard. One Mickey Hazard. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Mickey. My pleasure. And I look forward to the next time. Thanks for listening to What Happened to You. You can find us across all the main podcast platforms, so please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. For extra content related to what happened to you, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.